Alors bonjour tout le monde et bienvenue à Montréal, dans la belle province de Québec, pour l'édition spéciale de Museo Punks, ici au Museum Computer Network 2013. Mon nom est Pierre Bois et euh, je suis gestionnaire de projet avec l'Association des musées de l'Ontario, Ontario Museum Association, et ça me fait le plaisir, un grand, grand, grand plaisir ici à Museum Computer Network de vous présenter les Museo Punks. Alors, euh, bon podcast et euh, je vais vous voir dans l'autre salle. G'day and welcome to Museo Punks, the podcast for the Progressive Museum. That amazing French introduction was from Pierre Bois from the Ontario Museum Association, who you can find online on Twitter at Museums Ontario. My name is Suze Cairns and I am joined here with my excellent Museo Punks co-host, Jeffrey Insko. Hey Suze, how's it going? It is really good. How Great to be here in person with you. I know. <laughs> I mean, we usually sit and actually communicate via, you know, Google Hangout or Skype and online. And in fact, we yeah. really only spent 10 minutes in person together before, to, well, the last couple of days. Exactly. So it's really great to be here at a, an MCN in, in Montreal uh, with some really, really smart, amazing people, right? Right. Um, doing great work in the museum sector. So Absolutely. We are doing, over the next three days, we're going to be doing a session every day of Museo Punk. So we've got some really interesting discussions coming up which I'm hoping you will also find interesting. Um, we're going to get away slightly from our usual Museo Punks topics, I think, and get a little bit more creative, a little bit more into inspirations and some slightly more... Uh, Conceptual, playful, yeah. playful, playful topics, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I, you know, the, the conference essentially opened last night, right? Um, and there was a great Ignite event. Um, yeah. Some of the presentations were, were off the hook, I think um, uh, Luis here uh, uh, among, was among uh, uh, many presenters that I think really uh, pushed some buttons and brought some concepts into uh, into the conversation. Uh, yeah, right. Absolutely. What I, we've got actually two uh, presenters from Ig the Ignite sessions because tomorrow we have Don Undine right. with the Digital Humanities Unicorn that I have requested as a special guest <laughs> for the next session of Museo Punk. The unicorn will be here Yes, tomorrow. he might not be talking, although it might. So we, Ignite, Smithsonian, or Ignite MCN, for anyone who sort of hasn't been to one of these, is a short um, ideas conceptual session. So... Uh, There was it was popping. I, I found it really good. Yeah, and and also the keynote just happened this morning, and I think um, some of the themes that that Tina Roth Eisenberg um, mentioned in that keynote is go they're going to carry through some of the things we're talking about um, here on the podcasts uh, to, today with digital citizenship, but then you know also with inspiration, and I, I think this theme of of human uh, tactile physical elements of technology is really, um, I called it early, I think it's going to be one that runs through um, all of the sessions here. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, tomorrow's show, we're looking at inspiration, creativity, um, play for some people who were working in this sector. And if Tina Roth, sort of, Eisenberg spoke about four core principles in her work, which are create, play, trust, and respect. And I think we're really going to get those themes coming out in our discussions as well. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I think before we get started today, we have a couple people to thank. Yes. Um, I think we really want to thank Parska Films. Um, they're the ones that are uh, uh, facilitating this Uh, this video uh, documentation both uh, all, for all three sessions and they do amazing work so uh, we want to thank them for that uh, we also want to thank MCN uh, for inviting us here to do this um, I don't think you or I could have imagined when we started this podcast that 
we would be doing something like this. No, absolutely. I mean, it's sort of quite an amazing thing being in a room, A, together, but also with three guests yeah. and having the capacity to get into some ideas. But also MCN helped me come over from Australia, which is a really significant thing. So it's a huge thanks to MCN. Yeah, for sure. So uh, what are we talking about today? Okay. We're going to talk about citizenship and what it means to be a citizen and what relationship that has to do with museums. I mean, early modern museums or modern museums have long been understood as sort of these instruments of the state and they've been linked to these ideas of citizenship and democracy. In 1991, Carol Duncan wrote a paper called Museums and Citizenship. And she argued that public institutions like museums make the state look good because they make it look progressive, concerned about the spiritual life of its citizens, a preserver of past achievements and a provider of the common good. So I guess what we want to get into today is what citizenship is, how is it related mm-hmm. to um, museums, and whether that's changing in the digital age. Yeah, exactly. I think when we think of citizenship, we think of individual um, in, uh, individual citizenship. But you know, can can we talk about you know if institutions, our museums, our cultural institutions, have evolved into becoming model citizens, and could they be, could they participate in, in, at a level of, of model citizenship? As in, if a corporation can be a person, can an institution be a citizen? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Okay, so to help us unpack this issue, we have three guests who we're really, really excited about. Now, one we have just dragged in here, basically off the streets <laughs> in Montreal. Um, so we have with us Darren Barney, and he's a native of Vancouver in Canada, and he studied at Simon Fraser University and the University of Toronto, where he trained in political theory and received a PhD in 1999. He's author of Communication Technology, the Canadian Democratic Audit, the Network Society, and Prometheus Wired, The Hope for Democracy in the Age of Network Technology. In 2003, he was awarded the inaugural Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada Aurora Prize for Outstanding Contribution to Canadian Intellectual Life by a New Researcher. He's on the steering committee of Media at McGill and a member of the Centre for the Study of Democratic Citizenship. Darren Barney is Canada Research Chair in Technology and Citizenship and Associate Professor in Communication Studies at McGill University. Darren, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Welcome to Montreal. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Um, one thing before we get started, I, actually, I've got a little blurb about the study for um, the Centre for the Study of Democratic Citizenship, so I thought I'd introduce that. And then maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the fundamentals of citizenship. Sure. So the Centre for the Study of Democratic Citizenship brings together a group of scholars from four Quebec universities. The centre includes scholars and students from both communications and political science departments and brings a cross-disciplinary perspective to bear on the challenges facing democratic citizenship in a rapidly changing world. Mm-hmm. Okay, tell me about citizenship. What makes a citizen... Well, I, I'd say there's two, there's two elements that are crucial, and I think uh, institutions like museums uh, are kind of uh, important sites for both of these elements of citizenship. One, uh, citizenship uh, typically connotes some idea of identity or belonging, right? That you're part of some uh, group, usually in, in the modern context, a national uh, group that has a certain set of characteristics, certain set, certain history, certain language, certain... Um, uh, other kinds of attributes that define an in-group versus an out-group. And so to be a citizen is to belong to that in-group. That tells us right away that citizenship is about a kind of complex dynamic of inclusion and exclusion. The only way we establish the category of citizens 
And citizenship is by excluding some people from it and from the benefits and protections of it. And so to be a citizen is already to be distinguished from all of those around us who, for one reason or another, are designated as not citizens, as somehow not part of whatever this unit is that's being nominated as the citizenry. So that's the first way in which we think about citizenship as identity, belonging, inclusion, and exclusion. Uh, the second way we think about citizenship, especially in democratic contexts, is uh, um, through the, the basic uh, practices of participation that we engage in politically, where we participate in making decisions about uh, how political life is going to be organized, how our institutions are going to operate, how resources are going to be distributed. The most basic ways that that takes place is through the mechanisms of democratic government. But typically, we also understand citizenship to... Uh, involve a whole broader set of uh, social and political practices that can't be reduced to things like voting, where we uh, practices where we engage with our fellows in the public sphere debate, through debate, discussion, creativity, uh, contest, and uh, sometimes antagonism, sometimes opposition, sometimes uh, protest. All of these forms of participation make up the practice of citizenship that's the other side. Uh, of the coin of identity, belonging, inclusion, and exclusion. And I would add, finally, that many of the most important kind of democratic contests and struggles that happen on the participation end of things are about contesting the boundaries of inclusion and exclusion on the identity and belonging side of the citizenship coin. Interesting. Um, so, Darren, you, you do have to leave us a little bit early. If someone uh, wanted to find out more about you or, or your organization, where can they do that? Yeah. Well, they can find uh, out uh, about me at the, at the website for the Center for the Study of Democratic Citizenship mm-hmm. and or the website of Media at McGill, which is the other organization uh, that I'm part of. Uh, there's, uh, there's all kinds of links to contacting me and a lot of uh, my published material and, and the projects and activities that uh, those centers are involved in. Great. We will drop uh, all the pertinent links we discussed today in the show notes for this episode, which can be found at museopunks.org slash zero nine. Um, also joining us today is Kyle Jebker. Um, and Kyle uh, is the director of the IMA Lab uh, at the Indianapolis Museum of Art. And uh, he's responsible for managing you know, all these digital projects for the IMA that are, and their external clients. Um, Kyle's work spans from web and on-site interactives to mobile. And while at the IMA, uh, Kyle has used his background in software development and leadership to work, uh, work the, with the IMA Lab team in building technology solutions for a variety of museum projects um, and also contributing those projects and resources back to the community, which is, I think, um, you know, why we wanted to have you here and talk about that. So thanks for joining us, Kyle. Thank you. Our third guest, and I think this is really interesting, so we have joining us Luis Marcelo Mendez. Did I say it right? Sure. Okay. Um, Luis is a communications consultant for museums, um, and he's a journalist as well as a design and communication consultant. He's worked for 20 years with the public and private companies in communication, branding, digital media, publishing exhibitions and promotional projects. His works have been selected and awarded in festivals both in Brazil and abroad, and in 2012 he organized the book Reprogram that portraits a wide range of ideas and insights from museum professionals from the US, Canada, Brazil, and Europe. Now, one of the reasons we thought Luis would be really interesting in this discussion is we're sort of bringing some very uh, different experiences and different perspectives uh, to this discussion, and that's sort of where we're hoping, starting with these ideas of, of 
what makes a citizen and what is citizenship, of how we might be able to unpack these ideas from some very different experiences. Yeah. Um, and so I think probably a good place to start is to kind of right where you left off, Darren. What, so what makes a good citizen, and, and why do we need model citizens mm-hmm. um, as a, you know, in, a, in a society? You know? mm-hmm. uh, well, I mean, I think what makes a good citizen right, is a citizen who's uh, actively engaged in, in sympathetic action uh, with others uh, concerning their common interests and mm-hmm. public good. That's what makes a good citizen. I mean, we have all kinds of models of good citizenship that we get from kind of uh, state authorities and the images that they project about the kinds of citizens that um, that are the most productive, or certainly in the case of of many contemporary states, the most competitive, the most innovative, the most um, uh, industrious. Right. That's mm-hmm. we have certain projections that come out of the state for what counts as a good citizen, but I think below the level of those kinds of ideologies, at a basic level, what makes uh, uh, for a good citizen is, is uh, not only someone who, who cares about the public good, but who's willing to assume the burdens of the difficult work mm. of taking part with others in the, uh, the difficult, error-filled, halting process of, of trying uh, to uh, craft living arrangements and distributions of resources that are fair and equitable and just. Yeah, I mean, that's quite interesting because obviously for institutions, for museums, this idea of the public good is a fairly present thing. It's their you know, institutions and things. Mm-hmm. Kyle, at your work at the IMA, I mean, you do really interesting things in the digital lab and stuff. Mm-hmm. How much do these ideas of public good and participation, like, where do they sit in, in sort of projects you're coming up with? Well, I think um, we think of it in a couple different ways a lot of times. We will look at, you know, how can we benefit um, maybe, you know, the visitors to our museum is one core group, but then also the museum community at large. And that's a lot of, you know, what we talk about contributing our projects back to the community. Um, and working with other museums because, you know, we have a specific set of resources that not all museums have. So if we can take our projects and put them out there and help other people implement them at their museums, you know, that's a win for everybody. And one of the things that makes us feel good about what we do as well um, and, you know, feel like we're having a greater impact on on society at large than just maybe what's going on in Indianapolis. Um, And I think, you know, from... Obviously, our visitors are number one in a lot of the things we do, but that also maybe not always is, you know, from a technology standpoint, like you can do a lot of things in technology that bringing in the content might be more visitor focused. Um, And so the technology kind of, you know, leads, helps kind of get the pieces in place and get things moving, but creating that content and the ideas around it. Um, with the other parts of the museum, I think is where we really try and focus on that group more so than maybe the technology piece. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, even in terms of sharing and putting your stuff out there, you've just launched the IMA Labs, which mm-hmm. is, as, as far as I understand, as much about sort of sharing the products of your experimentations as sure. experimenting. Can you tell us a little bit more about the labs? Yeah, so... Um, it's been four years, or just about, that we've been doing the lab, and so it's you know it's a it's a place where we have some leeway to experiment and try new things, um, 
in addition, we work with other museums as a way to generate revenue for our museum. So, you know, it's a way that we can keep our team larger than our museum could support by itself. Um, and so, you know, we can bring in people that are experts in technology field and have that team in our museum and leverage that by, you know, doing interesting things and trying to keep that work interesting. But also then, like I said, our, our mandate from the beginning has always been open source, mm -hmm. you know, donate back to the community because... What benefits us, um, one of the things I always like to think is that, you know, we're not in competition with other museums. Um, maybe the ones locally in Indianapolis, we're fighting for the same eyeballs, but at the same time, like, the artist of Chicago is two hours away. If we do something and they can take it and benefit from it, or a museum in New York or anywhere else in the country or the world, for that matter, it's not hurting us giving that information out there and helping those museums. So, like, you know, in business, a lot of times you get into this, you know, got to keep things pr proprietary we don't want to share things because of the competitive advantage but the museum field i think as a whole doesn't you know like i said maybe if you're in new york and you're like working <laughs> you know to try and bring people to your museum versus like met and moma and they're kind of like fighting for that visitor traffic a little bit you you get that a little but in in terms of a global community i don't feel like that exists in, in the museum world so we can be comfortable pushing things out there and knowing that it's helping people and in the end, coming back and helping us, too, because all the projects being open source, we'll get contributions back from other people that are using them in other museums, and you know that only benefits us as well. Interesting. So let's kind of continue on this thread of community. And, and Luis, in your Ignite talk last night, I, I definitely felt that the community um, was a big part of what you talked about. Yeah. The, the museum... Uh, actively engaging with the community on their terms. Um, do, you, how, how, do you see this as um, as a, uh, a kind of a groundswell in 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 South American museum approaches, or um, is this is this something larger as well? Not really specific for South America, yeah. although in South Americas and and mainly in Brazil, we have this uh, social museology that is quite advanced. Hmm. But I see this really as a, a global trend, yeah. in fact, where uh, each institution can uh, and should uh, look out and find uh, relevance towards the community and, and how can they can play an active role in society. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack the social museology as it's sort of, as you mean, in this, in this way? Um, what... When you say that social museology is quite advanced in, in yeah. Brazil, what do you mean by that? Uh, the traditional concept of museums are places of collections. Yes. That's something that's been changing, right? And uh, now museums are, are quite what we decide to call it nowadays. So there's a lot of different approaches towards what can and should become or, or un, be understand as a museum. So this idea of social museology, it's like have uh, eco museums and you have uh, there, there's this wonderful project in Rio uh, called Museu de Favela, which is the slum area in, 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 the, in Ipanema. There, the project, the, the museum is a collection of oral stories. So you go walking through the favelas and people open the, the houses for you and tell mm. stories for you. So there's quite a, a different approach to what a museum can be. And there's also another community 
another favela in Rio called Muse, uh, Maré, Favela da Maré. There's this museum there, Museu da Maré, which is a collection built, kind of a crowdsourcing collection. Uh, each object of the museum belongs to the community. <laughs> and uh, individuals bring stuff to the museum and they can go a week later and collect it, collect it back, take it away. So the collection itself is a movable collection. Right. It's built upon what people choose to share with one another. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a, it's a personal picture or an object that they're sharing for some period and they can take it back if they want. So Cool. Um, hearing about this participation in the museum sector, Darren, do you think mm -hmm. Uh, do you think institutions can be citizens or perform as citizens? Um, what, what's your take on, on that? Yeah. Well, uh, I think uh, to the extent that w what I think you mean by citizenship in that context is kind of actively uh, promoting and engaging others mm -hmm. in a kind of co-production of common goods, um, public interests, uh, common stories... Uh, um, I think, yes, institutions have a role to play mm -hmm. as platforms, as instigators, as facilitators, as containers of uh, those kinds of practices of citizenship. Of course, institutions are also, uh, especially depending on what kinds of institutions uh, uh, they are, are also, you know, face a whole range of constraints and a whole range of differing incentives and a whole range of uh, different kinds of uh, directives that come from uh, whether it's their, their funders or the states that sponsor them that I think hedge their autonomy and their independence in terms of their ability to play these roles. But I, uh, I think that um, one of the things that's been happening in, uh, as a result of, of some of the unsettlement that's come with uh, technological change over the past couple of decades is that it's opened a whole set of possibilities and imaginations for people who uh, who develop and run and manage institutions such as the ones that uh, that you all work with uh, that kind of points the way toward possibilities for more kinds of active engagement and uh, uh, kind of uh, social interaction with the communities that these institutions serve that perhaps were thought to be not possible in the past. Yeah, I mean, in your book, The Network Society, uh -huh. you talk that the spirit of the age that yes. we're in yeah. is the spirit of the network. Yeah. And so that mm -hmm. seems to me to be where, what you're sort of getting mm -hmm. at here. Right. So what is the Network Society and how is it impacting these notions of citizenship? Mm. Well, I mean, the network society is is really the society that's where uh, a, a ever increasing proportion of social, economic, and political interaction are mediated by uh, technologies and devices that are that are networked. Mm -hmm. Right, that's the the, the, the basic. So it only idea. started with the internet. The network society? Yeah. No, I mean, there's, there's certain... The, the, the network is a form. A network yeah. is not a technology, right? And we could, of course, uh, look at the, the way in which the form of networks, social networks, even long preceded digital technology in terms of the kind of the complex matrices and lattices of, of interaction 
and affiliation that people uh, have engaged in always in communities. In a way, some have argued that communities have always been networks right, for sharing resources, for sharing information, for um, collective endeavor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you're right to point to the fact that that these kinds of arrangements weren't uh, born with digital technology, but there's something about a kind of accelerating effect and intensifying and extensifying effect, uh, especially across massive scales that these technologies bring with them. And so what has that done then to these ideas of citizenship? And also, I suppose, in terms of power, I think one of the big ideas that comes through a lot of museum practices at the moment is these ideas of participation and the participatory museum. And that's sort of really how we bring mm-hmm. other people's voices in when we mm-hmm. go back to those notions of inclusion mm-hmm. and exclusion right. that you were talking right. about before. Right. It's this capacity of bringing in different sorts of voices mm-hmm. and including different people's right. voices, which, I mean, sure. the example you gave, Luis, is a really good one. Why is this changing or how mm-hmm. is this changing mm-hmm. in response yeah. to the network society? Well, the promise of emerging media technologies and network technologies is uh, the democratic promise that's attached to them kind of uh, accrues to uh, expansive means of participation and interaction by people who were previously uh, excluded in one way or another. Uh, access to information resources that were, were not necessarily available to broad constituencies so readily before. Uh, trans- increased transparency of institutions where there, uh, you have... Um, uh, more of a sense uh, that communities are can become aware of and find modes of participating in the kinds of uh, programming or the kinds of decision-making that these institutions engage in. So this is really the democratic promise, participation, transparency, access to information. But I think that the crucial thing that we have to keep in mind when we have these discussions about the relationship between these technologies and, and institutions and citizenship is that... Uh, they're high, these relationships are very ambiguous, mm-hmm. right? For every cure, there's a, there's a kind of point at which it tips over into a poison, mm-hmm. right? And I think we have to always be very wary of, of the kind of rhetoric that suggests that, um, that emerging technologies are somehow a kind of magic bullet that's going to democratize institutions, democratize societies, democratize politics, mm-hmm. because there's too much going on with and around these technologies that drives in exactly the opposite direction and sometimes even in the name of participation and interactivity Hmm. and transparency. I mean, if we think of, just as one example, the ongoing revelations about the massive surveillance activities that uh, not only uh, the American and other states are involved in now, but the manner in which they're involved in those activities with the cooperation and collusion of some of the major online service providers and social media uh, corporations that we engage with and interact with and participate with and achieve transparency Mm -hmm. with every day. And so the price of all that participation and all that transparency, it seems, is a kind of unprecedented degree of uh, surveillance and monitoring of everyday (laughs) civic activity that has to have um, alarming implications for the, uh, the qual- democratic quality of the public sphere. Mm-hmm. So all of these things that we associate as, as goods that are perhaps facilitated in many ways by emerging media technology simultaneously in this environment carry with them very serious negative implications for the, for the quality of citizenship in the public sphere. And that's the, I think, 
the almost agonizing and difficult ground <laughs> that progressive institutions have to inhabit mm. with respect to these technologies. You know, at once recognizing the potential that they have for democratization and socialization, yeah. while also being very wary of the of the serious democratic liabilities that they bring with them. There's right. no there's no solution to this problem that makes either one of those ends win. Mm. It's just the difficult ground that we have to negotiate as we live through our experiences with these technologies. Mm -hmm. So when I think about uh, access and transparency um, in the museum context, I, you know, I, I constantly look at IMA as you know uh, an example of of an institution. Um, pushing some progressive, not only projects, but ideas, right? Um, and your involvement with, uh, with, these, with these ideas is on the technology level. But can you, uh, Kyle, speak a little bit to the institutional um, mandate of, uh, you know, con of contributing um, and why the IMA is so involved with contributing these resources and being transparent with the dashboard and things like that? W I mean... Talk a little bit about the institutional philosophy behind that and how it plays sure. with citizenship. Yeah, and you know, that started, um, I think, back when Maxwell Anderson and Rob Stein were kind of heading things up at the IMA, and, you know, the dashboard came about as a way to, yeah, just be more transparent with um, what was going on in our institution. Um, some of the stats, you know, that we put on the dashboard were like how many plants we had planted in any given month or something like that. So there were some, yeah. you know, things on there that, you know, were interesting, but at the same time, didn't really like. You know, they weren't like financial numbers or something. Yeah, there were some, those were on there, and so some maybe depending on the group, I guess, had more meaning. Um, but yeah, I think you know the idea was that you know our, one of our greatest assets is information and the things that we are collecting, and so um, putting that out there um, for the public as a resource for them to use and to get a better understanding of what we're going through as well. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, what we're doing on a daily basis, um, you know, all of that, just kind of, you know, starting a dialogue, um, with the public, uh, through the means of communicating extra information that publicly wasn't available in the past, I think was a big driver of that. Um, you know, there's, I guess there's no real reason to hide it, um, mm -hmm. I think was part of the, the thinking going into it too, you know, and we, we have all this information, let's let's get it out there for people to use and, and, you know, if it benefits at least one person, it was probably worthwhile doing that. Did it start a dialogue within the institution as well? You sort of said of start a dialogue with the public, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'd yes. be really interested. Probably in that's the hardest <laughs> part. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, you know, it started from the top down. So, you know, when you have that kind of pressure, it makes it a little easier to push something like that out, which was beneficial. Um, and so, you know, with, with that kind of mandate to, to make the information available, you know, then you go into the different departments around the museum and say, what can we collect from you? What is, what do you think would be beneficial to someone on the outside? What did you discover from doing that? Like actually going around to the departments, I'm sure you learned new things as well. Yeah, it was it was interesting. You know, it, part of it is a balance, right? Because these people, some, you know, everybody's busy uh, yeah. in the museum, and so oh, it's one more thing. Um, so it's you know communicating the actual need and the reasons for that was really important. Um, you know, being. I think, you know, the way we had things set up, we, we tried to make people responsible for certain things so it wasn't always one person. In some instances, that worked better than others. Um, and, and so over time, it's kind of adapted to meet, you know, what resources we have to provide for it. And I think, you know, it, 
it is interesting, you know, different departments, you know, everybody in each department knows like the things that they're good at and the things they think are important. So it kind of teasing those out from them really isn't that hard because, you know, you sit down and talk with them and, and get in, you know, understand what they're doing. People are passionate about their jobs and there's data and everything. Mm-hmm. So you can find something to track if you really want to. <laughs> yeah. There's data and everything. I like yeah. that. <laughs> Yeah. So how important, uh, and I'll throw this out to all three of you, um, how important, it seems like we're living in, in a, a networked age of access. How important is access to information um, when uh, fulfilling, uh, you know, your respective missions? And how important is, is access to information um, in, in this world that we live in now? Hmm. I'd like to know what it's like in, in South America as well. I mean, there's, there's this push for transparency that we're talking about. Has that con- continued? Is, is that present there? Or? I was just thinking about how this technology, somehow it's a kind of utopia came true. If, if you think about, for, for instance, the 60s and the 70s, right, when we've fought so much for information and transparency and openness to be part of the institutions. Uh, and, and somehow you engage in any ways or through a union or through a specific group or, or through a, a, a punk movement, for instance. You have the, this emerge to, to communicate and, and to engage people. Um, and somehow this whole ide- utopic idea Somehow came true through internet, but we kind of miss it, uh, uh, and the system somehow took over for, for this. Um, it's funny to to think on those terms and how we can uh, take another turn and and really open everything. Maybe that's that's the clash that you don't have to 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 have a. Uh, half open door, have probably open just everything, and, and mm-hmm. then become something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although there's reasons not to open things as well, and I mean, sort of where you were talking about in terms of some of the tensions of participation Absolutely. and transparency and openness. I mean, mm-hmm. even in terms of relationships with, in a museum context, relationship with funders and donors and things like that, there are some reasons not to open things, sure. but I'd be really interested, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. from your perspective, what are the reasons, I, I'm going to say, against openness? Right. I mean, one thing that we've, we, we, we've I think, started to come to realize is that, that some of the, uh, the, the things that we've kind of nominated as democratic values, openness, yeah. transparency, participation, interactivity, are not in themselves robust enough as values to actually uh, guarantee or produce the outcomes that we, in, we, we invest in them, right? That, so that's to say that, that all of those things are potentially good, and all of those things we might even say are, are necessary in a, demo, in a democratic environment, but none of them are sufficient to the actual end that progressive uh, 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 citizens, institutions, etc., aspire to, which is really justice or, you know, some version of that. What we want are just outcomes. What we want 
are, is equality in the end. What we want is well-distributed well-being amongst uh, the people that we're serving. And sometimes uh, things like access and participation and transparency serve those ends, but sometimes uh, they don't. And so what we have to do, I think, is, is get past thinking about things like access transparency, participation, as ends in themselves, as if once we've achieved that, our work as an institution is done and the rest will take care of itself. And instead, be kind of mindful about what it is that we think those values are actually for in the end, and, and to then try to make decisions about how we configure access and how we configure participatory opportunities such that they're more likely to conduce to the actual ends that we have in mind when we, when we kind of promote those values and to try to insulate them from being turned in the other direction, right? And so, you know, access, for example, I mean, I could, you know, there, in the museum context, I know certainly in Canada, in the, in the Canadian context where we, we, we have, you know, like, like, like most parts of the world, very uh, strong uh, indigenous cultures, uh, uh, we, who have not always been well served by the museology and the, and the state institutions uh, of museums that uh, certify and authorize knowledge about those cultures and have often expropriated their, uh, their cultural heritage. Uh, what, what access means to them is, is, is very different than, than what access might mean to me as a relatively privileged, middle-class, white male who sees myself reflected in the official history of my country. So there's, you know, it's not just access to information, it's access to decision-making, it's access to, uh, it's access to programming, it's access to the possibility of managing or denying access to certain kinds of culturally sensitive information that, that members of those communities might not want to put out into the promiscuity of, of the great data sphere. So we need to have complex ideas about, about uh, access and participation and understand that, that those are always the starting point, not the end point of a longer conversation and a longer set of development of practice, development of a set of practices that, that tries inch by inch to get to the outcomes that we want, which I think are more, as I said, about things like justice and equality than participation or transparency per se. So how, how do you guys think we get there? I mean, uh, speaking from, a, you know, we can think about this in, in greater terms than the museum sector. Mm-hmm. Is it all about education? Is it all about educating both institutions about, you know, the, the why behind transparency and the mm-hmm. why behind access? Mm-hmm. Um, or, or, or is there something else? Right. I mean, this is actually sort of one of the things that we we're tackling big topics here today, uh-huh. and it is trying to sort of work out how we think about sort of the framework in which we're working, because I think yeah. that's what we're sort of getting to as well. What we're trying to do, because I think these ideas of openness and transparency and participation are really dominant ideas at the moment in our sector, but it's then sort of working out well. Yeah, are these? This is a framework that we're working in, and how do we then use those as tools mm-hmm. to actually then achieve right. mission, yeah. like achieve yeah. the public mission of the institution? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're sort of really starting to get at: is how are these tools, um, and how can we use them, and sort of what the next step is. Mm-hmm. I guess kind of if we want to tie that back to like you know the dashboard we were talking about, one of the big reasons of doing that is to not just put the information out there, but to learn about the information ourselves. 
and what we can do to meet right. the mission of the museum right. based on that information. So, you know, there is a self-serving interest in doing that, um, and that, you know, by putting it out there, too, if um, a group sees it and they think something we're doing, like, isn't right, the data is there, and they can come to us and, you know, at least have started a communication like that. So, you know, there maybe that, you know, it's a way of putting things out there. And that's where I think, you know, I said there's data and everything, but you don't have to track everything either because not all of it's important. Um, so tying, yeah, to your mission, what you're collecting, um, so that you can analyze that to figure out how can we do this better? How can we serve people better? How can we, who are we underserving? Um, you know, maybe, you know we, we collect a lot of information about zip code, and we collect zip codes when people come to the museum, and that, you know, what communities in the, in the area are we underserving? And so we collect that information so we have a sense of, Maybe we need to target these areas a little bit more. Um, that you know, in the inner city, that's not getting out to the museum. Um, you know, things like that. You know, how can we adjust our thinking to make those people feel welcome in our institution? Um, and so, data is just a start, and like you were saying, as a means to further the mission of the museum and make things more enjoyable for everybody. Because I mean, in the end, we want everybody to come to the museum. And so, you know, figuring out who is underserved is a big thing that we go through a lot. Mm-hmm. Luis, what do you think? What do you think museums can be could be doing better in in terms of uh, citizenship participation um, in those realms? That you, maybe you see something, uh, you know, from your perspective. Yeah, uh, for instance, Kyle was saying uh, how we can uh, make people come to the museum uh, in, in better ways, right? I try to think about the opposite way. How can museums can go to where people is? That's my yeah. probably my main interest. Um, just to have this step beyond this idea of bringing people into the museum. How it's like uh, when you're engaging with a, with a friend, right? Like a human right. being connecting to another human being. You get you go to a friend's house and you you invite your friend to your house. So there's a, both ways. Uh, that's how uh, you build relationships. Hmm. So I, I, I'm quite curious how museums can leap from their walls and, and engage in a two-way conversation and, and, and build relationships about, upon this. Do you think the key is, is um, kind of um, assuming maybe human tr- characteristics from, as from an institution? Um, sure, sure. Yeah. I, I do believe that. <laughs> well, it's interesting because as soon as we start talking about this, I think about social media because in some ways that's clearly institutions going to where, where people are rather than expecting them to come there. Is if, you, you know, if your institution has a Twitter account, if you're active on Facebook and things, that's actually sort of trying to be where people are. Do you, are there different conversations that people will have like Kyle, with the IMA's social media accounts, do, do they engender different sorts of conversations, I suppose, than you maybe have in like, other sorts of communication with people around the institution or around the art? Or mm, they might not. It's a good question. I, you know, it, it, it's, I'd say they, you know, they, they try and reach out to people through it, and you know, people will you know, comment back to things. And so it, it is trying to create a dialogue that probably wouldn't happen without it, um, you know, and so it's one means that because there are so many people on it, you can start that discussion, and and so I think it seems like 
most museums are still trying to figure that out, like what that really should be. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm sure there are examples of that people could say that one's doing it better than the other, um, but I think there's there's so much that is still new, and you know there's all these there's degrees in social media now, right? And so it, um, it's interesting to see like where things are headed in that, and like people are becoming so specialized in it. But at the same time, you don't want to turn it into just a marketing message, and which some people do. And you know maybe there's nothing wrong with that, but it feels like the intention of Twitter is to at least start some sort of dialogue. So treating it kind of in an older style of communication, I think, is not the right way to go. So, you know, I think, you know, it, it's an ever-evolving thing at this mm-hmm. point. And, try, you know, there's it's people relearning to do their job in a lot of ways because they were used to doing it before Twitter, and now that changed a lot. And, you know, as new technologies keep coming, things will keep changing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's interesting because I don't, you know, I don't know if anybody's ever gonna figure it out perfectly mm-hmm. because of the nature of it. Yeah, there is this thing in digital strategy, the, the, the must, you have to find the museum voice, Yeah. right? Uh, but curiously, this voice somehow just applies to to social media. You see, uh, how, how this, uh, this voice can be a coherent uh, act in each and every thing that museum does. Exactly, and I, I think, I back to your Ignite talk last night, and forgive me, I can't remember the museum or the director that went out to the protests yeah. um, to protect, not, not protect the museum, yeah. but protect yeah. Yeah. the protesters from, and yeah, I think, police, yeah. right, and I think as an institutional voice, that is a non-technology based um, uh, answer to that. I mean, sure. it's, there's no purer voice than having the director go out and... And, and that's coherent with the museum voice, right? Yeah. This mm-hmm. idea of an exchange and a place where people can meet uh, in real, which is, you have this dynamics of rich classes and poor mm-hmm. classes in, in different areas, and, and the museum in the middle of it as a, uh, some place of exchange between mm-hmm. those extremes. Uh, so it makes perfect sense, in fact, for, for the museum curator to step up and, and, and as an institution to defend the people. Yeah, yeah. We, 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 they are protesting, but they aren't the, museum, the public. Right. That the museum wants to invite, right, to come to visit the museum. Mm-hmm. I don't know you about Well, I think this is a good example. I mean, it's... We always default to education as, a, as the solution to all our problems. But I think what uh, uh, the example that you're talking about now suggests that that really uh, it's courage that we need, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? It's courage. Uh, this 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 kind of uh, willingness to kind of step up and take the risk of sure. doing not the expected thing right. but the right thing. In, even in moments when we're not really sure if it's the right in, thing. In, the, you know? in my yeah. talk yesterday, I used these two images of Tony Blair and uh, uh, Malala, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and, and I asked how much are we in this comfort zone mm-hmm. of the education, education, education mantra. Right. That clearly, yeah. we, we, what we're yeah. thinking about when you say that museums mm-hmm. are places of education. Mm-hmm. And how much are we open to take risks mm-hmm. as Malala yes, for right. education? Right. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I mean, I think what the the, the real um, 
posture that, that, that museums and those who are involved in them have to take is one of kind of, of unrelenting self-reflection and self-criticism. Like, you know, that is to say you have to, uh, obviously these are, uh, these, are, these are tools and technologies and opportunities that, 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 that no institution is going to turn away from. But, uh, you know, you can walk into those uh, uh, technologies in a way that's simply about jumping on whatever the bandwagon is this year in terms of the latest application or the latest indication that you're forward-looking, et cetera, et cetera. Or you can, you can do that in a more deliberate, self-reflective way where you, ought, where you absolutely start with saying, well, what is the end that we're looking for here? And does this, how can we configure this? to meet our end and how can we use it and deploy it in a way that minimizes all the other externalities that we think are not so much what we want to identify ourselves with as an institution. And to do the hard work of doing that every single time, um, a, a tech, an opportunity for new forms of technological mediation present themselves. I think that's what this whole conference is about, in yeah. fact, and that's all that people here are already uh, invested with that spirit, it's how to bring that to an institutional level that's often responding to a whole set of, of other kinds of pressures and incentives that, 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 that don't necessarily allow for the luxury of self-reflection all the time. Right. The second thing that I would say very quickly, and this goes to your example as well, is I think uh, museums, because they are... Um, in a way, you know, they're public interest organizations uh, in their very kind of bones. Um, they're in a position to set an example, I think, by doing something that we don't often do in this context, which is running toward the hard questions rather than running away from them. Right? That, I think, is what's crucial. There are very difficult, complicated questions about how we're going to organize our lives with, with these technologies. And too often our tendency is just to say, that's too complicated, I just want to use my iPhone, I just want to get on my Twitter feed, <laughs> and all this other hard stuff, you know, somebody else will figure it out, and I'm just, I can't do much about it anyway. Right? We run away from the hard questions instead of toward the hard questions. You know, um, I think one of the hardest questions, it hasn't come up yet in our discussion today, but it's a good example of what I'm talking about is, you know, we've been talking a lot about information and access to knowledge and the way things flow. We haven't really talked very much about the whole material infrastructure on which all of this is built, right? right? These machines and networks, where they come from, under what conditions uh, uh, they're produced, mm -hmm. under what conditions they're disposed, what that involves in terms of the sustainability the environmental and human sustainability of this entire infrastructure on which we build all these magnificent opportunities. Mm -hmm. That's one of the hardest questions of all, I think, is, is, and that's the one we turn our heads away from so quickly, is like, mm -hmm. who's, who, who's, whose little fingers are, are, are building these machines and how much are they getting paid and where does it go when I throw it away and what's that doing in those communities mm -hmm. that are not part of the citizenry that I'm part of or part of the citizenship practice that I'm engaging in using these machines that come out of nowhere and go to nowhere when I'm finished with them. That's a very hard question of how we reconcile the democratic promise of these technologies with the material conditions uh, uh, from which they spring and which they, uh, which they um, uh, perpetuate conditions which are, you know, basically amount to the kind of systematic deprivation of the possibility of citizenship for, for many people in many parts of the world. And so that's one of the hard questions, right? So what I think is that 
as institutions, museums can set an example by running toward that problem instead of running away from it, right? Owning up to it, trying to figure out best practices that might reckon those kinds of considerations, and again, that's just an example, into their decision-making around how they're going to source their technologies, what they're going to do with them when they're finished with them, what you know, how do they handle the question of obsolescence and turnover in machines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems like uh, you know, it seems like we're dealing with an, an, an iceberg of citizenship. We see we see and know and talk about the the transparency, the accessibility, but underneath there's, I mean, it's a it's a huge issue, yeah. uh, a hidden issue. Yes. Um, and I, I really like what you said about museums taking the lead in running towards these issues. Mm-hmm. I look to our two museum guests and ask, do you think museums can? Or do you think they will run towards these problems? Hmm. <laughs> is it, their, is it yeah. their place to run towards them? You know, is it... There's a great effort, I think, uh, in this idea. Uh, we have, like, 55,000 museums in the world. And most of them, uh, not exactly uh, the case of the U.S. or the countries, but most of them are public museums. Mm -hmm. So they are dependent on uh, some kind of uh, government idea or vision. And the, the great thing that we have to ask is how they can become somehow independent from their government to have and apply this museum voice. Mm-hmm. For instance, you, you mentioned uh, uh, indigenous mm-hmm. communities, right? Uh, when when there's a, a museum related to an, an indigenous community and there's an issue, a political issue that regards this community, does the museum stand for mm-hmm. them? Mm-hmm. Contrary to the interests of the government, mm-hmm. how, how does it right. happen, right? Yeah, yeah. You're asking me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you're the clever guy. <laughs> no, no, no. You're the guys who know what you're actually talking about. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that's a, that's a good example. I mean, that's a good question. I, I think one of the ways that you run toward the hard problem is making common cause with others who are uh, either experiencing the... the, the the um, the pointy end of the hard problem, right? Those who are who who um, who are vulnerable, mm-hmm. those who uh, st- who experience harm, uh, and also making common cause with other, uh, perhaps unconventional actors and groups who are working in creative ways outside the state system and outside uh, the corporate system to try to come up with ways to address some of these uh, very difficult challenges that come with living in this environment, right? And so it's about, uh, I think, yes, when push comes to shove, right, identifying with the, uh, the vulnerable and the weak and the aggrieved and the harmed in this equation and also uh, making common cause with other kinds of progressive actors who, are, who have uh, similar uh, courage. Yeah, I mean, to me, the the thing they're not talking about, though, is funding. Yes. Um, because actually, I mean, that's a really huge issue, is uh, even this idea of, well, sort of let's reflect on every project before it happens and things, and sometimes someone gives you some money and says you need to do 
this thing with it. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's the thing you have to achieve. And actually, yeah. the capacity to then reflect in a um, in a particularly meaningful way isn't necessarily always available to people. I mm-hmm. think often there's a sense that, well, we have a product and we need to achieve it. Mm-hmm. So that sort of then becomes a different discussion. Yes. Um, because, you know, the mandate is also to get the work done mm-hmm. um, rather than always being able to sort of reflect and go through things. And it seems like the model at IMA with the lab being, you know, uh, kind of a, a revenue generator but also a contributing member of society seems like it may um, help with that funding question in a way. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's... I think we have to, from the lab standpoint, to make that work. Yeah. We have to be conscious of the projects that we take on um, and who we're going to do them with so that it can contribute back. Exactly. Um, and so we, we can go build a website for someone, and we've done that. And so I'm not saying that's not something we wouldn't do, but at the same time, it's not as innovative or doesn't contribute back in the same way that building a framework for you know mobile tours that any museum can use can do um, you know we can contribute back knowledge and what we learned in going through the process I think from something like that but in the end the, the tools that are built are kind of you know that's a website um, so I think you know focusing on on that and working with the partners that are have similar interests to us and this kind of goes back to what you were saying um, you know the collective museum community I think we get that a lot when we come to a conference like this mm-hmm. and working together and it's so great um, and then we all go our own ways and continuing to do that and maybe you know the pushing forward to the hard questions and it, it is getting together with other museums to um, and not just looking outside as well but you know we could look outside and help get help too but using that as a way to push some of these hard questions mm-hmm. like you were saying um, you know we every time we get together it feels like there's this great like cohesion between museum people especially at the MCN and museums on the web which are the two conferences I usually go to I'm sure that probably happens in other parts of the museum too and so you know making that those connections and it kind of goes back to the you know the keynote today and just technologies kind of dehumanizes things a little bit and I you know as a technologist I'm like eh, okay. <laughs> you know but then sometimes when we're looking at projects you know like well you know maybe it people would prefer just to talk to someone instead of have their phone talk to them. Um, And so I I have this, you know, weird, like, I I work in technology, but I actually don't like it a whole lot sometimes. (laughs) I work technically all. (laughs) And so, you know, um, I I guess in terms of citizenship, I've kind of lost where I was going, but I think, you know, what you were saying, we're all global citizens, Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that only excludes aliens, I guess, so maybe it doesn't meet the full... uh, (laughs) um, uh, definition, but you know, thinking you know globally and how can we uh, make an impact? You know, a lot of times we're so focused on the small thing, going at those hard questions. And, you know, there are a lot of things that, as a group, we could come together and probably push forward on. Yeah, absolutely. Now I'm just going to interrupt you for a second because I see Darren desperately giving me. I need to escape things. <laughs> Darren has actually really kindly delayed a class that he's meant to be teaching to come here and speak with us. Um, so thank you so much for coming and sharing your knowledge with what, oh, what we've you. been talking about. It's been fascinating. Thank really? you. I learned a lot thank and uh, it was a great conversation and I apologize for having to rush out to do a little bit of education. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think everyone in this room can appreciate what we can go I, do that. Thank you, Darren. Thank you, Darren, so much. Now, I think this idea of what you're talking about, though, Kyle, in terms of the community and what we can actually do within this 
this space and this sector is a really good conversation to be having here at MCM. Because then it's those things of, well, this is, you know, a network for connecting with one another and so how we then tackle the important problems in the sector together and what those mechanisms are that we maybe need to bring those to bear mm-hmm. become part of the question as well. Because, you know, do we have the right mechanisms so that we can pull resources? Do You know, is are there things that we as a sector or sort of even as, I'd like to say, even a subsector, like sort of the, the people who are really active in this part of the sector... Do we have the mechanisms that we ha- that we need to be able to sort of share our ideas and things? Do you do you think that um, is this community enough? Is that what you're? Well, yeah, I suppose. Or, or can we build on the things that we already do? I suppose. Yeah, I think so. I think you know there are a lot of you know technologies made sharing things a whole lot easier, um, for, for better or worse, I guess. And you know. From a you know from our standpoint, the lab sharing code and things like that is it's really been great and and like you know it's fulfilling and it gives us a sense of a good sense of purpose for what we're doing. Um, But I think you know one of the things I've thought about a lot is um, outside of our community and which is very close. You know we interact with a lot of the same people a lot, which is good. But at the same time, there are a lot of people in. The technology circles that are not related to museums that could probably benefit or we could benefit from right. that I don't think we reach out to enough. Um, you know, the, the, the creator of jQuery, uh, John Resig, has this uh, an affinity for Japanese art. And so I've seen him tweet about this quite a lot. And he created a project. And it's like, I wonder if he's ever talked to a museum about this project that he's doing. And so, like, you know, reaching out to, like, like there's so many people in the community. And that's what is, I guess, one of the great things about the Internet is you can see what everybody's doing, um, for, <laughs> for better or worse, again. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, maybe there is broadening that community and pulling in resources that might not exist in the museum world or exist to the level that's small enough that can't do enough to impact the change that we want um, could be a really you know beneficial thing. I'm not sure I know the best way to go about that, but in, and maybe it's little pieces at a time. You just start reaching out and hope that it grows. Um, and it, you know, I guess you know, thinking about the keynote too, and what some of the things that Tina had done, and they all started small and kept growing and expanding, and so very organic, right? Right, the kind of organic growth, organic uh, progress. I think may be key to addressing a lot of this stuff. Yeah, and often sort of coming from, I suppose, you know, one person's inspiration and going, well, this is a problem I would like to solve. I will do that, and then I will bring other people in to see, get them to help me solve this problem. Or, at, at, you know, as the solution grows, so too does then its sort of capacity to influence, I suppose, as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, and the concepts that she showed, what really drives her, create, play, mm-hmm. trust, Respect. Ain't that a great combination yeah. for for uh, museum thinking? That's how you build relationships. It's elemental, almost. Sure. You know, um, yeah. It's it's really profound, I think. And and again, I think that this idea that we're talking about, uh, almost removing technology from the equation and starting at yeah. at the granular elemental level, I think is going to be something that we're talking about all week here. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and when it's based on, on respect and trust and create, you can do pretty much everything. Yeah. For instance, you take, uh, um, there's this museum in Glasgow called Goma, 
Mm-hmm. It's a great museum, uh, and they are ha- having or been having these uh, activities with uh, towards communities with violence issues, for instance. Right, and it's been quite helpful in that healing process, mm-hmm. uh, based on basically uh, uh, trust and respect. Mm-hmm. So that that can lead you pretty much everywhere. <laughs> So do you guys think we adequately solved this problem? <laughs> no. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done, but I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm confident we're, uh, we're on our way. Yeah, I, I like having this conversation. I mean, for me, when I was doing some research preparing for this session, and I was going back to, you know, this was Carol Duncan's paper in 1991 writing about museums and, like, and citizenship. It's actually this really interesting thing to come back and revisit these topics maybe from a different perspective and different angles, but also, I, I want to say, through the lens of technology or through the lens of the way we're thinking about these problems now. And it's sort of, you know, if this is stuff that our field has been thinking about or our field has been dealing with yeah. for a significant amount of time, so then how we bring new ways of thinking about it, I think, is actually a really significant thing. I hope. Yeah. I hope. <laughs> I hope so, too. Um, you know, I want to just want to thank you guys for being a part of this session. Um, Kyle, uh, for someone interested in you or your work at IMA, where, where can they go to find out more? Um, well, on Twitter, it's kjebker. That's K-J-A-E-B-K-R. And pretty much any other social network, it's the same. So have at it. Um, and then lab.imamuseum.org is where our... Um, new website. New right. website, yes. yeah. Just beautiful, Tuesday, beautifully done. So. Yeah. yeah, was it um, launched to coincide with MCM? That was a thought, yes. Yeah. So <laughs> it, was, it was like a three-week project or four-week project to put together. And, you know, the, the idea is that it, it's new and it's it built in a way that we can experiment on it. Great. Um, and so hopefully going forward we can do some fun things on there. Cool. Yeah, fantastic. How about you, Luis? Um, it was a great honor to be part of this conversation. I'm a huge Museo Punks fan. <laughs> Museo Punk to the bone. And likewise, <laughs> we're yeah. a huge fan of you, man. <laughs> so uh, where can people find you, Luis? Uh, basically, there's the, the Twitter uh, at Luma Mendes, or you can find me through email, luismarcelomendes uh, at uh, gmail.com. Cool. We'll drop links in the show notes to all this stuff. But uh, thank you, guys. We we really appreciate it. Um, Just a couple housekeeping things before we uh, stick a fork in this episode, right? Sure. Um, Do you want to start? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, we have we have a lot of uh, a lot of conference um, to go through yet today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been marking off my sessions, and I still haven't decided which ones to go to because there are actually a lot of really good things. I know. I what do, what are you what are you into? What are you going to see later? Oh, I think I'm going to see an excellent session called "Hey You, I Know You: New Frontiers in Interaction Design." Oh, yeah. Okay. Which I think sounds pretty fun. It's got you know things like research understandings, multi-touch and gestural technology, how digital can amplify the audience's voice in official museum output. That's, Very cool. that's, that's one of my sessions. What about you? I have two that I've um, bookmarked for later today. One is the uh, future of museum digital departments, ah, um, yeah. which uh, 
is I, I'm I'm really interested in the structural component of all this. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go check that one out. Uh, oh, I just touched uh, MCN karaoke. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. Um, the next one is is Micah Walters' talk. Um, Micah's from the Cooper Hewitt, um, and he's doing a talk on rapid prototyping in museum office culture later today, which I think is really important. I also had that one bookmarked, but in part it was because the overall session title for that is Stop, Collaborate, and Iterate, and I think that's kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. It, it looks really interesting, I think very good um, as sessions, and they sort of fit under the overarching theme of MCN this year as well. Yeah, I think so too, and I, I know speaking from experience at, at my particular museum, we're really thinking about how, you know, what is the digital department? How does it interface with other departments uh, in an effective, uh, collaborative way? So um, I'm really interested in, in how people are starting to think about that and whether, it's, whether it makes sense to, to infuse at a deeper level uh, with the organization or, or, or not. So um, I'm really interested in that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So... Uh, I don't know. Do you guys have anything that you're particularly interested in or themes that you're you're looking at for yeah, the rest of the conference? Yeah, what are you following? What do you come here for? What do you, like, do you have a thing that you go, that's the thing I know that I'm going to go to? No, I'm just open to everything cool. that comes up. Okay. Nice. Yeah, I think um, the sessions all do look really, really good. And, and I always, I think the, the main benefit of coming to these is meeting the people. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah, the conversations in between are always great. So I always look forward to that. Um, and karaoke, of course. And running. Yeah. Yeah, and running. <laughs> that, I need some more people to show up. Cool. <laughs> There's this thing about this community. There's, uh, I'm quite new to it, so mm-hmm. I- I'm still impressed how generous this community is towards mm-hmm. each one. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? It is. It, 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 is do- it doesn't yeah. happen pretty much everywhere. Like uh, you, you take, for, for instance, designers. They don't collaborate that much. If you let a, a group of designers talking uh, with uh, 50 minutes, they're talking bad things about clients, but they, they're not sharing <laughs> any, anything. And, and it really impressed me how, how generous this community is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I think so too. Well, that's actually a really nice time for us to thank MCN again for yeah. their generosity because it is that capacity. Um, well, the fact that they do bring people into the conversation and that certainly has included us. Yeah, for sure. And we have two more sessions. I was about up. to say that. Yeah. We do. So uh, tomorrow is Friday, November 22nd, and we will be uh, we will be doing Inspiration, Muses, and Forces that Inform Creative Digital Work. Uh, we have some good guests for that. Uh, like the Digital Humanities Unicorn. <laughs> digital Humanities Unicorn and Don Undine will be here. Uh, we'll have Michael Walter, yes. uh, who I just mentioned, and we'll also have Coven Smith. Um, we'll be talking about uh, the things outside of museums and outside of technology that, that inspire us to make this creative digital work that we're all doing. And I'm actually a little bit scared because Coven and Don have known each other a very long time and having the two of them in a room around one table talking about the things that inspire them, I'm a little worried about this. That we, you know, we won't be able to hold on to control of that conversation. Um, but, of course, and I, I'm really excited about our session on Saturday, so we're going to be chatting about basically how technology changes our sense of being in the world. So does... Another small, just little... Tiny tiny topic. (laughs) But, you know, if you're constantly looking at the world through, you know, the iPhone screen or through Google Glasses, how does that change? How does the, you know, the fact that 
the main way we interact with art now is online in a lot of cases. How does that change our interactions with it? How yeah, and does we have, language change? Yeah, uh, we have a great lineup for that as well. We're going to be talking to uh, Beck Tench, yes. uh, Matthew Israel, and Nancy Proctor. Yeah, um, it's going to be pretty rock and roll. Yeah, it will. Um, so again, uh, thanks to uh, Parska Films yes. and MCN yes. uh, for having us. And show notes for this episode can be found at museopunks.org slash zero nine. Yep. And the hashtag for all these sessions is hashtag MCN punks. So. Yeah, we're pretty punk. We have our own hashtag now. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Uh, thank you for tuning in to anyone who's been listening, whether it is here at MCN or over the podcast. It's been fun. Yeah.